Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, birding, and environmental education. If you have a fascination with the natural world, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us. So give it a listen. And if you truly care about the environment and enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. Today's guests are Tora Rocha and Terry Smith, founders of the Oakland, California-based Pollinator Posse. The Pollinator Posse creates pollinator-friendly landscaping and fosters appreciation of local ecosystems through outreach, education, and direct action. They engage with municipalities, landowners, golf courses, garden groups, and the general public to help people become better stewards of the land. Terry and Tora make a wonderful team that made a huge impact in Northern California on a number of fronts, so much so that Tora was actually awarded the Jefferson Award. Our conversation was wide-ranging, and as a result, I decided to divide it into two episodes— Today, we discuss the origin of the pollinator posse and the good fortune that brought Tora and Terry together. We discuss a few of the posse's current areas of focus and how they engage with the public, including their creative Tees for Bees program that raises awareness about the importance of sustainable landscape practices at golf courses. Much of today's episode focuses on the dire situation of the Western population of the monarch butterfly. Western monarchs have distinct behaviors from those seen in the Eastern United States, and their population has crashed to frightening lows well below what is thought to be sustainable. This crash has corresponded with surprising behavioral changes that the posse is working to better document, along with their conservation partners. We discuss the monarch's life cycle, what distinguishes the western population from the eastern population, how populations are even measured in the first place, why monarchs migrate, and the odd behavioral changes suddenly observed in 2020. We also discuss what individuals and landowners can do to help. Next week's part two continues the discussion of the dramatic decline of insects in general and what homeowners and landowners can do to create better habitat. We discuss the terrible impact of systemic pesticides such as neonicotinoids and how to avoid purchasing plants that are pre-treated with these long-lasting pesticides. We also discuss how maintaining a healthy habitat garden is actually often less work than maintaining a lawn or a traditional garden and the importance of leaving some messy areas. These areas are important for the life cycle of insects in many ways. That episode is packed with useful tips. You can find out more at pollinatorposse.org. Without further delay, Tora Rocha and Terry Smith. Hey, Terry and Tora, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you. One of my past guests highly recommended that I reach out to you, so the day has finally come. Thank you. So the reason, one of the main reasons anyway, that I did invite you on is because of the organization that you created, Pollinator Posse. Can you tell me what that is, what the mission of the Pollinator Posse is? Our basic goal is to lead in creating and educating the public about healthy, sustainable, pollinator-friendly landscaping, because we're hoping that there'll be more inspired, engaged, and informed public. But it also is going to increase the richness and diversity of our native pollinators throughout our communities. And when we first started, we, you know, we're basically Oakland-centric because it started in a local public garden down at Lake Merritt in the city of Oakland, because I was a park supervisor. But now that I've retired, Terry's retired. Well, we we retired, but we don't call it retired because we learned what the word retired means, that you get tired and then retired and retired because we're working harder than we ever have. But now we're like all of Northern California because I'm up in the Sierra foothills. Terry's still down in Piedmont and... Um, we've really gained foot footage, and now it's not so community-centric anymore. We're like, our communities are basically all of Northern California. In the course of your work, who do you generally interface with? What sorts of organizations do you focus your outreach towards? Terry and I, I think we're a great pair because we hit different niches. I'm focused on the landscaping world, like the horticulture world, because that's what I know best. So I deal with master gardeners and municipal workers and homeowners and farmers and ranchers. I deal mostly with the landscaping end of it and the the installation of habitat. And then Terry can talk about what she does. Yeah, well, I'm an educator. And so um, my focus is classroom visits, talk to master garden groups, usually together. 
Torah has a lot of credibility when it comes to public landscaping in particular, having worked in that field for a long time. Um, I'm a home gardener who's been experimenting with things myself, so I have more of that perspective. Um, and then I have the educator and curriculum background for the general public and children. So one thing I always like to jump into when you talk about interfacing with the general public is, uh, and oftentimes this is towards the end of one of my podcasts, but since you brought it up, do you have any, any tips or tricks or suggestions that have seemed to work well for you to really get that engagement from somebody? What I'm envisioning is that you're at a festival of some sort and you have people that may not be there for you in particular, but you're trying to maybe help capture their imagination for this cause that you have. So uh, with that in mind, what's worked well for you? For me, I'm a big believer that sharing your passion is the key to engaging the public and passion is contagious. And so we like to show our passion and in festivals, we're usually aimed at children because people are usually following their children around a festival. So we do a lot of outreach. We do these little, we call them Airbnbs. They're little birdhouses that we have kids convert for native bees then we call them little Airbnbs and we have them color them and put paper straws in them. And then we talk about the difference about native bees being single nesters. So I always tell the kids that, you know, you're helping the single moms of the bee world. And Terry's super talented at getting kids and working with them to teach them about pollination. I'll let her tell you. My personal passion is most people don't even understand what pollination is. Most people, you ask them what flowers are for, they say to feed the bees adults and kids. And so coming up with various demonstrations with finger puppets and creative things for kids to do. One of the big events we've done two or three times is the Heirloom Festival up in Santa Rosa, Sonoma County Fairgrounds, um, usually in the fall, not this year, that's sponsored by Baker Creek heirloom seeds. And um, when we say working a table, that's 1,100 kids in three days who come through our booth making Airbnbs, acting out pollination with the finger puppets. We have a little mini museum where they can see some of the different pollinators up close in microscopes and things like that. So that's been really effective. But Tor is also really good at coming up with really creative ways to engage people like Teas for Bees, which I'll have you talk about. And also our the work we do at Autumn Lights, where we're incorporating art into a broader festival, but also educating people uh, in the process. So you should talk about Teas for Bees. Yeah, let's hear about it. So that's our newest, well, one of our new events is getting an old hat. Now, just a big problem I have with sports fields is all the pollutants they use. And so I used to be a greenskeeper. So I know very much that they're heavy polluters at golf courses. So I wanted to be able to talk about going organic. And so I came up with this idea to have kids hit seed balls into the open space um, at a golf course with golf clubs. So we put pollinator seeds in the seed balls. We make the seed balls. We teach them about soil health. And then we have the kids go out there and literally launch these seed balls into the open space with golf clubs. And they yell, for the bees! And, you know, and they have a blast. And the golf courses, because if I can get the players and the parents of players to talk about the need to have pesticide-free golf courses and healthy places for their kids to play sports, that's how you're going to get golf courses to change their ways. There's so much huge spaces that could become critical habitat for pollinators and creatures that are within a golf course. So I'm trying to change the way golf courses actually look at their space and tell them, you know, why do you want to be a heavy polluter and people not want you in their communities? But when you change your ways, you go organic, you create critical habitat for native wildlife and also I'm doing this tease for bees so that we can get super blooms. And you know, I told golf courses, look at how people went, drove four miles in bumper to bumper traffic to go take a selfie with a poppy. You know, I go, what if we did it right here in our communities? You know, in your open spaces on your fringes, let's create super blooms so people can have like Sunday super bloom Sunday selfie day at the golf courses and you get new customers. And you change that you're a critical asset to your community instead of a bad player. 
So that was what Teas for Bees was about. And so we, we're about to do it again in April at two courses in the Bay Area. That sounds great. And it seems to tick a lot of marks in that right. you are engaging the kids and they're you know able then to have this memory for the future. And you also found a way to make it useful to the golf courses, which I have to admit, one thing I thought about when you talked about engaging with golf courses is I'm, I'm a birder mm-hmm. and very often the ponds that exist on golf courses will attract like coots or geese and things that the, that they really don't want on the golf course, or maybe even a rare bird. And suddenly all the birders are showing up and perhaps interfering with, with the golf play. Right. Uh, so in the past, my engagements have sometimes been a little bit more negative slanted because of that, but you found a way to take it to their pocketbook in a way that they can actually attract new customers. Right. Because, you know, they're all trying to figure out how to get the younger generation to be out on the golf course. I'm like, you know, so like Frisbee golf is really big in some place, but this is another way to get a whole nether corner, you know, play golf for a certain time. And usually the twilight time is actually the best time for birds and stuff. So like, why don't you open it up? People can rent carts and go birdie in the afternoon or something, you know, but, you know, and it's just using all the space they have. They take up so much space in the community. There's some great programs out there already. Uh, Monarchs in the Rough is one that they do in the Midwest. I just wanted kids and golfers to know, because I know that the fungicides used on golf courses cause great deal of testicular cancer in old golfers, but no one talks about it. So this is my way of getting that out there and talking to the golf courses and then making them feel a little guilty. But they like it because it brings people to the course. So um, it's a win-win. The the linkage to testicular cancer, is that, uh, I mean, I didn't know that. Is that generally well known? Would I be able to find some links I could include in? There is some links. I'll, I've, I have it in my file somewhere because... I'm trying to get the PGA to be a sponsor. You know, I've talked to other sports field, you know, even the Oakland A's was my sponsor for Autumn Lights Festival. And I spoke with them and they were talking about the whole thing about healthy sports fields because they had just lost their longtime groundskeeper to cancer. And I said, well, it's because of all the pesticides he's had to use. You know, it's like, but you guys are all rolling around on that grass out there stretching. So That has to be part of this conversation when you talk about pollinators and stuff, even though it doesn't seem like sports fields, they all are leaching into our waterways, everything that's sprayed. And no one talks about that because they only care about their field. When you talk to an athlete, and those were the hardest of the kids for me to get to were the kids who were athletically inclined because they only cared about their field their soccer field or their, and that's why I came up with teas for bees. It's like, if I can start with the kids who are learning golf, like maybe it'll trickle over into the other kids. I've been in this field. I worked 37 years for the city of Oakland. Most of it was a gardener. I got to see how, what we do as landscapers affect the ecosystem. So that's my main story. Like you'll hear me say over and over and over is my main mission is to teach anyone who puts their hands in the dirt that you're not an outdoor custodian, that you're a steward of the local ecosystem, and you need to learn how what you do affects the ecosystem. This really speaks to me. I did some kind of back of the envelope math, say, I don't know, a year or two ago, just wondering how many square miles or acres, pick your metric of choice, in the United States was, say, lawns and golf courses and you know these sorts of things. And what I was able to find was it is close to this to the land area of the state of Florida. Mm-hmm. I think it was actually a little bit larger <laughs> than the land area of the state of Florida. So it seems like this area that you're focusing on is just ripe for improvement and uh, maybe some, you know, in a way, a bit of low hanging fruit. Right. And it's it's I work with Xerxes Society, which if you look at the amount of land that's used for grazing for cattle, you know, it's even bigger. So with Xerxes, we focus on cattle ranchers and, you know, farmers, because there is so much space that gets wiped out for cattle ranching, but there could be such critical habitat if they learn to share, you know, it's like, um, with sheep, they don't like to, like, for instance, they don't like to grow milkweed because sheep are not as smart as other 
like goats and they'll eat the milkweed and they can die from the toxic chemicals in milkweed. It's very rare, but you know, sometimes sheep are not the sharpest tools in that tool shed. So um, it's been a, a lack of understanding between the ranchers and scientists about how much it really affects the ranching areas. So now there's a big push. I like to focus on the sports fields because if I can get one athlete to talk about it, because they're just, the kids look up to them as if they're a god, you know, and if I, if I can get Stephen Curry to talk about healthy organic golf courses, I'm in, you know, <laughs> so that's my goal is like, yeah, you know, and I'm hoping Aisha will take it on because she's a chef, you know, I'm working on that, hopefully, because eat, learn and play is a big component to um, Oakland's Park and Rec right now. And that's who I work with on this project. So if I can get Stephen Curry to talk about, you know, healthy playing fields, I think we'll be doing okay, you know? <laughs> Very exciting. Yeah. So, so maybe for Terry, can you tell me how you and Tora connected to, to form the Pollinator Posse? Sure. And, what, and, and I think when I read on your website, the Pollinator Posse is not just you two. There's, there's more to the organization as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the organization is a very loosely bound group of volunteers, um, but we do have a Facebook page with 1,100 members that's very active and we have a pretty broad reach. But yeah, I do want to tell the story of our meeting because it's a fun story and it's pretty typical of things around Torah. Um, <laughs> I guess it was eight or nine years ago. I think it's longer though. It's 11. Okay. 11 years ago, I was teaching, um, I was a science and math enrichment teacher at a local elementary school. And my school had had a tradition of raising monarch butterflies in the classroom. And when I took over the job from the prior teacher, at that time, there was a place where you could order caterpillars and plants in Half Moon Bay, and they would send them and it was easy to do this in your classroom. So when I took over the job, Teachers came to me and said, okay, will you order our caterpillars and our plants? And I did. And that worked fine for a couple of years. And then that company went out of business. Their well literally dried up and they stopped providing that service. And um, for about three years, I was on the internet all the time and trying to track down a place to get caterpillars and eggs and, and milkweed for the teachers. And I didn't have any luck. There was no one west of the Rockies that was doing it. And when we talk about monarch life cycle and explain why we don't want them from the other side. One day I was, it was actually the first time I was down at the gardens at Lake Merritt. I had gone down there with a friend who'd said, oh, this friend of ours is having an event down there. Let's go check it out. So she and I got to the garden, another teacher. We didn't know where in the gardens this event was taking place. So we asked directions of the first person we saw, which happened to be Tora. We didn't know she was the supervisor for the whole garden at the time. And she said, well, I'll walk you over there. And on the way, she said, you know, I'm going away for the weekend and my office is full of monarch caterpillars that I don't have anyone to take care of. And we stopped there in the middle of the garden. And I said, well, how about 550 kids? How would that be? And she said, yeah, well, yeah, the mayor's been wanting us to do more outreach with kids. That, that would be great. So I took home the caterpillars that day and put them in classrooms. And pretty soon I was down at the garden every week, picking up caterpillars, picking up eggs, picking up milkweed so that we could keep this process going in the classroom so the kids could see it. And actually, it's a funny story. The first time, the first three I got, I brought home to go through the process myself before I was going to put it in teachers' classrooms. And we have these three caterpillars. We named them Larry, Moe, and Curly. And my husband, you know, often is somewhat skeptical of my projects. And they were in the dining room. And uh, Larry and Moe had quite successfully gone into chrysalis. But Curly was hanging there and hanging there. And we were getting worried. So every time we walked through the dining room, we checked on Curly. And I left the house to go run an errand. And as soon as I opened the door, when I came back in, I hear my husband from the back yelling, Curly's a chrysalis. <laughs> so, you know, you get hooked. 
And I've watched classroom after classroom, the same thing happen. I've been a monarch midwife in front of a classroom full of fourth graders when a wing got stuck in the chrysalis and we rescued her. From then on, it seemed like everywhere I went, I ran into tour. I'd go on a garden tour. She'd be at one of the houses. I'd go somewhere else. I'd run into her. So it was clearly fated to be. So we work together pretty closely. We talk several times a week and coordinate things. But we have a pool of people we can draw on when we do things like events. Tora knows a lot of people in the, the world of pollinators. So we usually know who to connect with who or where we can get certain resources through her. Then actually Jackie Salas, she's the horticulturalist at Children's Fairyland, came on board because they had a lot of monarchs over there. And so Terry was that perfect liaison because she was more kid-oriented and I was dealing with more professionals in the trade. And so when Terry got added to the loop, it was perfect. Everyone wanted me to do more and more kid outreach, but that was not my forte. Really, it was the perfect partnership. Basically, I would say the main players of the posse were me, Terry, and Jackie. And then I started doing all of this outreach in the garden And I wanted to build a bee hotel. So I asked the director of public works, who was my boss, my boss's boss's boss, if we could have the city carpenter build us a bee hotel in the garden. And because she started raising caterpillars in her office downtown at City Hall. Eddie was doing it down there at the technical center at the main yard. Yeah, Eddie Dunbar from Insect Sciences Museum of California. Jim Ryugo, my boss at the time, was encouraging me to do this everywhere. And so little did I know, but turned out like 60 public work employees started raising caterpillars at home or in their offices. And these are grownups. I would get these calls. And the next thing I know, the mayor's mom, she, you know, she was always volunteering outside in Lakeside Park. And she was one of my main volunteers. And she started raising them at home with with the mayor's kids. So then the next thing I know, I get this call. Actually, she was a city councilwoman there, you know, because one of the swallowtails had come out and it wasn't moving. And she's hysterical on the phone. She's like, Tora, Tora, it's not moving. And, uh, and I'm like, who's this? And she's like, Libby, it's Libby. And I'm like, Libby, Libby, councilwoman Libby? And, like, and she's like, yeah, I got your phone number for my mom. And she's like, the, the butterfly came out, but it's not moving. And so I told her what to do. And sure enough, it was alive. She just needed to give it some moisture and some orange juice and the swallowtail was fine. But we'd get these calls and it was, you know, it's so it worked out perfect because if it was someone with a kid, they would call Terry. She could walk them through, but it would be these adults. Like sometimes people would call and say, oh, my son thought it was a Lego and he tried to take the antenna off and it died. And they're like crying, they're sobbing hysterically and I'm like it's a bug it's a bug it's okay it's like it's but people just get hooked we used to call it the caterpillar connection and so I always joke that I use the butterflies you know I pimp out the butterflies because I can't send bees home with kids you know because people just get so I mean if you it was crazy to walk into payroll at public works and here's a payroll officer and she's got a cage on her desk and everybody here's the guys from sewers and streets and sidewalks and the electrical department walking by and asking her questions and then I'd get a call can I get bring some home to my family and it was nuts it was totally nuts and it was that support from my my managers at Public Works. And then it went to the mayor and then the mayor gave the Monarch Pledge to National Wildlife Federation. So it was like, just took off. It was crazy. So I knew I needed way more help than just me doing that. And Eddie was a big, he was the one who said, do this. He was the igniter. Like he, he's like, you can do this. You should start your own thing. Come on. Like he would tout us all over public works too. And and then Brooke Levin, the director, she even changed our employee contributions to where people can donate directly to the pollinator posse from their paychecks. And we still get employees donating out of their paychecks to the pollinator posse. It's an amazing story from how you two met to the fact that there was sort of all of this 
hidden interest that you were able to cultivate and pull out of people. So you made a comment I wanted to maybe follow up on. Mm -hmm. You said that you were kind of pimping out the butterflies because you couldn't send bees home with people. And I'm just guessing that with the success that you've had, you've probably encountered other organizations across the United States that are perhaps trying to do the same thing. And is, is this a theme you see with butterflies? Yeah. If you talk to, like, if you talk to entomologists, they say that butterflies are actually accidental pollinators. The way their anatomy is that, you know, they're sipping nectar and maybe that some pollen will get on their bellies or something and they'll transfer it from flower to flower. But the heavy hitters in the pollinator world are bees and they're native bees, not honeybees. So my main story, when I start talking to people in the trade or farmers or ranchers, it's about getting more native bees out there and, and start protecting the native bees from pesticides and stuff. But people can't, don't get as excited. Butterflies are so beautiful. And I always end my talk every time about how a three-year-old is the one who taught me why butterflies are special. He came up to me after he raised the butterflies at home. And he's like, he's like, Tora, he goes, you know why butterflies are special, don't you? And I'm like, no, Cole, tell me. He was very cute. He had his hands on his hips, like, Ur, you know, and he's like, butterflies are the fairies of our earth. They fly just like Tinkerbell it hit my heart so hard that I was like, he's so right. They're so magical. They're so beautiful. But if you start looking at their life cycle, and that's when I met Terry, and this is the part I think that really changed me. Terry had witnessed it over and over before, but looking at the molecular level, what goes on in that metamorphosis state is just mind blowing. They eat for 18 days. They just eat a plant. They turn into liquid. They're not eating the two weeks that they're in that chrysalis. So they go in a chewing, crawling insect. They turn to liquid and 10 to 14 days, they come out a flying, sucking insect. So it's almost a different species that they come out and they only ate those first 18 days. I'm like, I go, that's the future of energy. If we could be that efficient with plant material, I always joke, what, you know, can you imagine what a Tesla would look like? The way they're using plant material to create energy. I mean, it's just mind blowing to think about it at, as an adult. So, and that's really when I got hooked. We have no right to wipe these creatures off this planet. We've gone to Mars, but nobody knows exactly what creates a metamorphosis. It's crazy that we haven't spent more time learning their fuel efficiency. There's so many you know, amazing things about the metamorphosis that occurs and the fact that I think there have even been some studies that show that there's some sort of transfer of memory that happens during that stage. They know that they for of... sure. Yeah, because they, they've used scent, an appalling scent to a caterpillar, then it'll flinch. It remembers that as a butterfly. So they, they've proven that now, that there is part of the brain and part of the stomach that stays in, intact. And that's it. The rest turns to liquid and re reforms into something else. So it's just the whole thing. It's like it gets you hooked. And so that's why I say that. Well, you said the magic word, monarch. Well, I'll, I'll go there. The monarchs, and I often joke in my talks that, you know, everything in the ecosystem is equally important, but monarchs have the best PR. And in terms of other organizations, the whole migration east of the Rockies has brought a lot of people in and there's organizations that have been going on, particularly with that population for a long time that we connect with Journey North and Monarch Joint Venture. And then recently there is an organization west of the Rockies that's been formed called Western Monarch Advocates, which we're a part of. It's only, I mean, it had its first summit a year ago, just before COVID shut everybody down, but that's the first time everybody had gotten together that deals with the population here. So there's already a lot of PR out there. So that's, you know, it's kind of our entry drug. People get interested in monarchs, then they get interested in other butterflies, and then we can bring up the other pollinators and then the other creatures that are part of that same ecosystem. One of the questions I field a lot is there's a type of aphid that often gets on milkweed plants. 
it doesn't really seem to damage the plant. And if you leave it alone, the ladybugs come, you know, it's just part of the whole system. But I'm constantly getting calls about, you know, we have aphids on our plant, how do we get rid of the aphids? Well, there's nothing you can do to get rid of the aphids that wouldn't damage eggs and caterpillars of monarchs. And the aphids don't bother the monarchs. And their food for other things in the food chain. But, you know, I'll have people call and say, I cut down all my milkweed because there were aphids all over it. And now I have, there are caterpillars and they don't have anything to eat. And I'm just, well, how did that work? Let's <laughs> think about that. But they're determined to get rid of the aphids. Well, the caterpillars, so like I, I have I have some milkweed. It's unfortunately the tropical milkweed. It's a non-native milkweed. So I'm planning to replace it all. But they, they definitely get a lot of aphids. They get oleander aphids. And right. there's a lot of the honeydew that gets put onto the leaves, and that can lead to some other uh, pathogens. So if I'm a monarch coming along, do I just pass by that plant that looks like it's damaged, or, or do I care? It's like, well, my caterpillars are going to eat it anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, the ones that do get really dark and sooty looking and really super infested with aphids don't seem to be as popular for egg laying as a lusher plant. You know, when that happens, cutting it back and letting it regrow with fresh growth is fine. But if there are caterpillars and eggs there, you're eliminating their habitat. And what I find more often than not, I mean, the tropical, because it doesn't go dormant in the winter, tends to accumulate especially when it's cold. You know, I find if I leave it alone, nature takes its course, something comes and eats the aphids. I mean, if the plant is stressed in general, it's not getting enough sun or something, they're more likely to do damage. So that means looking for another place for the plant that really fits the ecosystem and the needs of the plant. I mean, the aphids have equal right to be here to the monarch and maybe they're contributing something we really need, but we haven't studied it. They're actually also good because if you only have monarch eggs or caterpillars and the wasps and the ladybugs show up, they're going to eat the caterpillars. But if there's aphids, they'll eat the aphids. So it's actually a good decoy for the monarchs to be able to survive the predators. And for me, it's it's if you have aphids, that means you don't have pesticides, systemic pesticides. They're like the canary in the coal mine for me. I love it when I see aphids on milkweed because it means it's a healthy plant. Like, I mean, it's not pesticide ridden. I wanted to get in a little bit more to the maybe the biology of the monarchs or their life histories mm-hmm. more accurately. And you alluded to the eastern east of the Rockies monarchs and then the western monarchs. What's the difference between them? Well, I mean, in terms of species, they're the same. And there actually is, they've determined, they used to think it was, they were completely separate populations, but we know now from tagging operations and various studies that particularly in the South, down LA to Arizona, Utah, that area, there's a fair amount of crossover. And even some that make it over the Rockies, bless their little hearts. The monarch life cycle, they are originally a tropical butterfly, And over time, the monarchs from Mexico built up this migration where they move north following the milkweed as it comes up. And the reason we're talking about milkweed is because caterpillars, both for moths and butterflies, are the original picky eaters. For each species, there is only one plant or family of plants that that caterpillar can eat. So the adult lays the egg on that plant. For monarchs, it's milkweed. And the caterpillar does nothing but eat that plant. It's the only thing it can eat for nutrition. And then goes into chrysalis, butterfly, and that butterfly will lay eggs on the milkweed. And so over time, the monarchs have followed the milkweed north as it comes up during the summer and into the fall, all the way into Canada. What happens is the the first generation which has been in diapause, a sort of hibernation, not breeding, not eating in the mountains in Mexico, where it's kind of the perfect temperate temperature for them to be in diapause, come out in the spring, they head for Texas, they lay eggs on the first milkweed they see. That generation flies further north, lays eggs. That generation grows up. It's up to five or six generations moving north during the course of the year. In the fall, the last generation when it um, comes out of its chrysalis, is a little bigger. It's also already in diapause. 
The caterpillar gets cues from the day length in particular, but also temperature, and knows that it's going to be what they call the super generation. And those single butterflies fly all the way back to Mexico to overwinter, and they live for several months. Up to six months they can live versus two months on the other generations. And they haven't, I mean, it's five generations ago, at least, that they were in Mexico, so they know where to go. And they go to a single area in Mexico and hang in the trees. And that was the migration that it took, that took, you know, was a big deal when they discovered it in the 50s. And it was on National Geographic and it was a big thing. What we're thinking is probably a more recent phenomenon because there doesn't seem to be a lot of history um, back in Native American records. A similar migration takes place in California, but the overwintering site or west of the Rockies, basically. The overwintering sites are scattered along the California coast. I think they've identified about 200 of them now, most famous being Pacific Grove, which has taken its name from that and really promotes it. But they're scattered along the coast. We think they were in Monterey Pines originally, but a lot of them have adapted over to eucalyptus. Um, And it's similar. They hang in the trees. It's that same temperate thing because they're near the ocean. It's cool enough to keep them in diapause but not so cold that they have frost or problems like that. They spend their winter there. And then in the spring, they come inland and north and go up as far as the Canadian border, Oregon, Washington, and as far east as the Rockies. And that population hasn't been studied nearly as much as the Midwestern one. And like I say, it's recent that we've figured it out that it probably is was formed later from that same Mexican population. They're very adaptive. So what's happened in the West, well, both populations have seen tremendous decline over the years. A variety of things, pesticide use. I mean, the Midwest is a food desert for them. If they can't get milkweed or nectar plants as they're going through, there's nothing they can do. So they eat where you have miles and miles of monoculture. There's also habitat loss in the overwintering site. It's a poor part of Mexico, and they want to log those trees, understandably. So there's been a decline. In the West, we don't have as good of records. Xerxes Society um, started doing annual counts in 1994. And at that time, there were over a million monarchs overwintering along the coast in California. It's easiest to count them when they're overwintering because they're all in one place or a few places. Um, And that's declined over the years gradually. Last year and the year before, it was at 30,000, which had been set as what we thought was the tipping point for the migration. This year, we had a huge change in behavior that we've been helping doing some research on. Normally, because I put caterpillars in classrooms, I, you know, I gather eggs and always have them available so I can put them in educational settings. And normally in the fall, teachers want them right away. And of course, the school years move back into August. And usually I'm hard pressed to come up with eggs until September because that's when the monarchs are migrating back. They come through in the spring. We don't see them in the summer except for a few stragglers. And then they come back in the fall. And that's the time that I would provide them to classrooms. This last year, I had eggs laid in my garden starting in, well, I actually had them laid in February when they came out. And then, yeah, starting in May and June, every single day I found eggs all the way through November into December when my milkweed went dormant. And we were getting reports from people, you know, people inquire on our website. I used to field, you know, maybe one question a week from someone. I mean, all summer and into the fall and even now, I'm still getting questions from people with caterpillars and sort of that sort of thing. Now, part of it, we know the observations are a little skewed because of COVID. More people were home. More people were in their gardens. Way more people raised monarchs because they were home and it was something really inspiring to do. So I'm fielding a lot of those, what do I do questions from newbies. When we did a survey, more than half the people who were raising monarchs were new to it this year. So that's part of it, but it doesn't account for the numbers we've seen. And Southern California had a similar situation going on. So we thought when the Thanksgiving count came in that it would be 
really good. Now we were getting reports from Oregon and Washington that they weren't seeing anybody. So it seems apparent that a lot of them didn't migrate. They just stayed in the Bay Area and in the LA area. So that's a mystery we're trying to solve. When they did do the Thanksgiving count, there were only 2,000 total monarchs in the overwintering sites. So that's compared to 30,000 last year. Last year, which was a scary low. Yeah, a million plus in years long ago. But, you know, people are saying, how could there only be 2,000? I see them in my garden every day. And we don't know the phenomenon. We've actually um, started doing some really serious surveying with people. I have a new survey that's going to go out this week. We did one in November so we could get some data on 2020 so that I wasn't just reporting. Well, I've had phone calls and I've heard from people. It's not super formal, but we had 65 people in the greater Bay Area report the details of what they had seen. So, we, you know, we have some sense that this is widespread and we're hearing similar things from Southern California. And we're going to start a new survey this year that's broader. We're hoping um, there hasn't been tagging of monarchs to track them in California for a while, just a combination of factors that made that difficult. We're hoping to get that program going again so we can find out, are these monarchs that were raised by people and they think it's summer because they were raised indoors, so that's why they're not migrating? Or have the monarchs decided climate change <laughs> here and they're going to try something new? We just don't know, but we, we'd like to start to find out. And so it's great that we now have these Western Monarch Advocates Group. I was just on a phone call yesterday with the three people in California who jointly report and talking to people in Oregon. So we're hoping to gather a group of regular reporters because now we need people scattered all over to report. We can't just count them at the overwintering site and know what's going on. So I have a, a backlog of questions. There's so many interesting <laughs> things that you've touched on. So you mentioned the survey that you did. Uh, is is this something that you, just to clarify, you started it this year based on the anecdotal reports, or has it been something you've been doing Well, you know, I, yeah, I mean, it happened because I'm our reporter for Northern California for this Western Monarchs Advocates Group. And being a teacher and a science teacher, I didn't want to write an anecdotal report, so I pulled together the survey and put it out to people. And like I said, we have a good reach with our Facebook page, and we're, we're getting regular contact with people who are really committed to monarchs. So I was able to gather a fair amount of data in a short time. I mean, I'm not... I don't have a PhD, I don't work at a university, but um, we at least have some sense of what was going on. And we've been now talking to Xerxes Society and they're like, get us more data. They're calling me and asking me questions based on the data we've gathered. Yeah, they reached out to me because they realized that the norm, the public doesn't trust the scientists because they've been saying don't rear at home don't plant tropical so there's this public is afraid to be honest with the scientists and they've realized that the posse is pretty popular and people like us so we're sort of that liaison between the public and the scientists now i think that's also there there's a you mentioned earlier the tropical milk milkweed controversy. And we have literally seen people come close to blows over that in meetings. <laughs> you have the purists who feel that we should only have native plants. That's the only appropriate plant anywhere. You have people on the other end of the spectrum who feel like, well, if they're going to lay eggs on the tropical, we should leave it. And it's there. It's beautiful. It's what all the big box stores are selling. The problem with the tropical, well, there are two problems. One is that it doesn't, and well, they're both caused because it doesn't go dormant in winter. Our native milkweeds in California go dormant in the winter. <laughs> they used to. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not quite as much. They go dormant in the winter. That solves two problems. One, there are pathogens, diseases like, unique to monarchs. There's one in particular called OE that gets deposited on the plant and then picked up by future monarchs. And so that tends to build up over the season. And once you have an infected monarch visit a plant, then the plant is infected. But once it goes dormant and comes back, you've eliminated that infection. And there are, there are some other more generalized insect diseases that transfer that way too. 
we kind of have walked the middle road in terms of the tropical milkweed. We're practical. We know it's there. There's a lot of it out there. Telling everybody to rip it out is it's impossible. It would be like getting rid of ivy. People like it. The monarchs do lay eggs on it and are, are choose it. So who are we to say? We do ask people to cut it back in November when the, the other milkweed is going dormant. We use Day of the Dead, November 1st, as our reminder um, because monarchs are very deeply ingrained in that celebration in Mexico. It, it's part of it is that the monarchs are coming back at that time and they see them as souls. So that's one approach. The problem that's now coming up with that is because we have this breeding into November and December. January. People don't want to cut milkweed down that has caterpillars on it when they're going to starve. It's a mixed bag because at that time of year, they, they're not going to survive anyway, or very few of them are. It's too cold. There's too much disease around. They're too stressed for them to get through their life cycle, which gets way slowed down because it's cold. I mean, the ones I kept outside, I think two of maybe 20 actually emerged as butterflies. And at least one of those was sick. It, it, you know, it's just a hard call. And especially when we get people calling who have named their caterpillars and are really attached. I talked to entomologists and they're like, oh, one individual of an insect isn't a big deal. Well, if they've named it Curly, it is a big deal to people. And they really want to do the right thing. So we've, we've kind of backed off that message with this change that we don't understand. The other problem with the tropical milkweed is we don't know why the butterflies are continuing to breed into the winter. It doesn't seem like a wise strategy. They're using up the resources that would get them through the winter to be able to lay in the spring when the offspring would have a much better chance of surviving and continuing the life cycle. I just recently was hearing about a study where um, that Karen Oberhauser did where they, they tried to figure out what the trigger for diapause was. And they determined that first it was day length, second it was temperature cues between day and night, and third was the availability of milkweed. So if we have people rearing inside, we're ruining those cues. So I question how many of these monarchs that have stayed around and kept breeding were part of this big increase in people rearing the butterflies. That's one of the things we want to look at in our study. That's an interesting thing too. He's earlier, you know, it was mentioned that you have a, a multi-generational migratory pattern. So some of this is seemingly sort of programmed in through the DNA, I would imagine. It sounds like then there's a, there's a hypothesis here that rearing indoors can pretty quickly override that sort of programming right. that they have. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are non-migratory monarch populations around the world. It's a, it's a pretty common tropical butterfly. So they didn't start out as migratory, but obviously there's a long history in these populations of being migratory. And we don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing if they don't migrate, if they don't use those resources, but it gives them a very small area they're living in. They're laying eggs and um, using up resources at a time of year where the chances of survival are very small. And the milkweed being there is a trigger for that. The other problem that we're seeing is with changes in temperatures, the last few years, we've had very warm spells in January and fe or February. And what's happened is they've met many, if not most of the monarchs have left the overwintering sites way earlier than they have in the past. The problem is there's no milkweed up yet. So, you know, and it's sort of like compounding interest. If you don't get that first generation, then your chances of building up are very, very small. So people are arguing that we should have the tropical milkweed, you know, so we can have it in the early spring since they've changed their behavior. And we just don't know. We take a very middle of the road, like, this is what we know. You'll have to make your own decisions, but we can inform you on what science we have and we can start to gather some data so people can really look at this change and, and figure out what is the best thing to do. It's not just us that doesn't know. It's literally the scientists. Nobody knows. There's yeah. not, it's, so this is what I'm calling the year for observation 
because all of this is unprecedented breeding in the Bay. It's the Bay Area in Southern California, and it's mimicking what has happened in Florida. The scientists are just, they're desperate for any kind of information we can get from these urban settings because they've never seen anything like this here. Yeah, and their systems for gathering data are based on this migratory population that they can find all in the winter in one place and kind of follow where they know it's been in the past. And it's it's just not following that pattern to the same degree. So we need a new way of collecting data that's more dispersed. You mentioned the tagging program and trying to get that started up again. You alluded to the fact that it used to exist, but no longer exists. What did it look like and how can people perhaps help? Is the Western Monarch Association looking for donations to kind of help get this up and going again? We are looking We are looking for donations, the posse, yes. because it, we will probably be a main group tagging because we have access to the people rearing. It's not the overwintering site ones necessarily that need to be tagged. It's these ones that are just doing unprecedented behavior also. Like, are they leaving the Bay Area and going to the overwintering sites? Are they staying here all the time? I mean, really, it's like it's there's two different organizations. You can donate to Xerxes or Xerxes Society will be probably doing some. The Mon- Joint Monarch Venture will be kind of heading it up. All of us. I mean, you know, this year was probably the worst year for donations for us because I think everyone put all their money into campaigns or they or they lost their jobs. You know, normally we, we get pretty good donations, but this year is like probably one of the worst we've seen. But this is the year that we're going to need the money because we have to be able to get tags and it's going to cost not a lot of money, but it will cost, you know, printing and we have to do, we'll have to get money to these other organizations that give the tags. You have to get a permit, like homeowners can't do it. It's, you have to get a permit from the fishing game and all of that. So the organizations that get the tags, it's all recorded. It's all for science. It's not, we do not encourage people to just create their own tags and start doing that. Um, It can cause damage to the wings. We're all desperate because this could be, I mean, really, if we don't find a way to get these guys to have something to lay eggs on, in the spring, we this may be the last year we see monarchs in California, except maybe Southern California. It's really that bad. So it's it's kind of desperate. Well, yeah, they thought 30,000 was the tipping point for the migration and the population, and this year we're at two. So, I mean, there are obviously more monarchs than that because we're getting reports, but we don't know if they're really going to contribute to the long-term population because they didn't didn't go into diapause over the winter. They've been laying eggs. And actually monarchs, if there isn't milkweed available, can reabsorb the eggs, retain that resource to get through the winter so they can come out in the spring and breed when it's going to be successful. So although we're getting all these reports of monarchs around and a lot of people are saying, oh, well, I'm seeing them all the time. It's great. Not that many. We don't know if it's actually going to add to the population in the long run. Right. Certainly misleading what you see in that, you know, that there's not a future, it sounds like, because there's, there's no larval food plant for them to, uh, to make it through to the next generation. I mean, I don't want people to give up because I believe there's hope because insects are crazy. You know, it's like, if we're talking about a mammal, I would say, oh my God, this is really, but each female can lay up to 400 eggs. So they can recover quicker than other species. There is hope, but... One thing I wanted to ask about with respect to the donations, if people want to focus their efforts on the monarchs, can they earmark their donation to say, I want it really to go to this cause? Mm -hmm. We have different funds earmarked for different things. You know, I want people to see where their money goes. We're pretty big on that. You know, Tees for Bees would be a different fund than, you know, habitat restoration. We bought a lot of cages and a lot of milkweed last year. You know, um, now I'm trying to figure out, We now that we know that raising, rearing them indoors is not a good idea, I'm trying to figure out a way to just put a netting to protect them from predators over the milkweed in your yard so that you wouldn't necessarily bring them indoors. So that way they're still getting the cues to see if that makes enough. Because on top of this, all this stuff we're talking about, the one big 
thing that happened to the monarch population is a huge increase in European paper wasps. And they were wiping out the eggs and the, the small caterpillars this year in many urban gardens. They didn't need a new predator. And it's like, we've never seen it in the numbers that we're getting. But I think part of it is this unprecedented breeding that happened in the summer before we had caterpillars and eggs when there were the wasps aren't out yet because they don't they don't come out until spring and summer like late spring and summer and so this is the first time i saw that clash everything is changing the predators uh, the diseases they're getting because there's the breeding in the winter so there's all these crazy bacterial and viral infections that they can get from cold temperatures well that never happened before and I can add that one of the things we're looking for is people who are willing to be regular reporters. It's one thing to say, oh, I saw a monarch today, and we want those reports. But there are people who see them all the time, you know, have gardens that are particularly attractive to them or in areas. And we're looking for people who'd be willing to once a month fill out, this is what I'm seeing. These are the kinds of numbers I'm seeing on these plants in these conditions. And that survey is going up this week, both on our Facebook page and it'll be emailed out. We've just been talking to council members in Oakland. They're going to put it out through their constituent lists and things so we can get a, a good network of people who are reporting on a regular basis. I mean, it probably take 10 minutes to fill out the survey. And also people, when they see something unusual, who will do a quick report so we get the idea of what's going on. So a question that keeps coming up in my mind, and I'm not quite sure how to ask it, is reporting on the absence of monarchs. So to elaborate a little bit, I'm thinking about iNaturalist and how people tend to report interesting things they see, but you can't really tell how many hours were put into it. So if I saw a monarch, but I spend four hours a day, every day in my backyard, and I only report one monarch, that doesn't really convey that there's a large population. But if you just look at the singular reports, it might give a different impression than the reality. How do you account for sort of both ends of that spectrum in the sort of the data collection methodology? Exactly. And it's exactly why we can't use iNaturalist, unfortunately, um, because we need to know if it's a one-time thing or if this is a regular occurrence. And so, you know, that's part of what we're asking to people to report. Is this your regular monthly report? Is this something you've just seen today? The other problem with iNaturalist is the need to take a picture. And you see one monarch flip through, the chances you're going to be able to get a picture of it are, are very limited. So we're hoping to take that into the account. It, it ends up making for a relatively lengthy survey, but you only have to answer the questions that apply to what you just saw. If you saw one adult monarch, that's all you have to report. And we'll and you'll indicate that this is a one-time report so we can kind of tease through that data. I mean, it's a learning curve for us. We learned a little bit from the survey we did last year, which was targeted just a little bit differently just to document that this was happening. Now we're hoping to get more information that can, can lead us to cause or patterns that need more investigation. We've in the past... Most of us have relied on Art Shapiro's study sites. He's the UC Davis entomology Art Shapiro. He's the longest continuously studied sites in the world of Lepidoptera. And last year, he put out that this was the insect apocalypse was happening because it was the first time, especially with Monarch, since he was eight years old. This man's in his 70s. He's been studying these sites now for 49 years, every two weeks. I mean, every two weeks, he checks these sites up and down central California and the Sierras for different butterflies, not just monarchs. And last year was the first year since he was eight years old that he did not see a monarch or a monarch caterpillar all year. And he wrote a paper about that we are witnessing the apocalypse and that it's serious. So we all relied on him. But now if this is year round monarchs in the urban settings, we're not going to be able to use Art Shapiro anymore because his study site stops in Sacramento. So we need to get people set up for this regular studies. Like if you have a garden that you see monarchs flit through on a regular basis, you're our kind of person. 
we would really like to get you to start reporting. Do you see eggs or mating or what are they nectaring on? Because that's the other really critical part. Like we all talk about milkweed, but if monarchs are here year round, we need to make sure they have winter blooming nectar. That's my niche in this group. Terry's the survey person, the studies, the, you know, and then I do talks on what to plant because that's what most people forget is that you have to plant for all the life cycle. You can't just plant for the caterpillar or the butterfly. There's a famous story from Monarch Watch that this woman had bought a bunch of milkweed and she had been growing the milkweed for like four years. And she called the Monarch Joint Venture and said, I haven't seen one monarch. She goes, all I get is these dang pusky caterpillars that I keep killing because it's eating all the milkweed. You got to tell the whole story. So that's like a very famous story that we use that you have to plant the milkweed for the caterpillars, but you also, for us now in the Bay Area, it's going to be super critical that we have things that bloom in the winter and they're not always going to be natives. So I'm going to get the purist coming after me, but I don't care at this point. I care more about the monarchs. I'm used to getting yelled at, (laughs) put it that way. And I'm not afraid of it. I'm like, bring it on. You know, I'm a landscaper and I worked in a botanical garden. So we had think a lot of things that aren't native. So I got to witness what the monarchs were nectaring in the winter on. And some of it is Australian and South African plants because it's our winter is their summer. So they bloom here in the winter and they're great nectar sources. So that's really critical is getting people that will want to be part of the survey, also getting a group of people that will go out throughout their communities and start planting nectar plants in in open spaces or in their front yard or their little corner pocket park or that kind of stuff that we're making sure that we can keep this population for future generations to witness. So I have a a couple questions about the distribution that I've been meaning to get back to. So it, it sounds like in the traditional like before this year anyway, the migratory patterns. At some point, I think it was Terry, you said that there hasn't been as much research done on these Western monarchs as on the Eastern ones. Do we know where they disperse to across the West in in normal years? Well, I mean, we have reports and there definitely been studies to check it out. It used to be thought to be pretty limited over time. They've seen the spread. And now you know, there are active groups in Oregon and Washington who are watching for them and observing and doing some rearing. You know, you see them in the Sierras in the summer. It's pretty broad, and there have been studies that trace them. Um, There used to be more tagging programs, which made that a little bit easier. And it's just recently having to do with state university funding and who could do it and the fact that it had to be permitted. It's really California with the exception of the desert area, which is part of a Southwest study that has been without a tagging program. So they've been tagging them in Oregon and Washington and then coming down in the winter and spotting those tags. There's an active program there. And like I say, in the Southwest, there's been a very active program, which is where they've discovered this whole crossover between East and West down there, which was not believed to be the case in the past. So we're hoping that we can get a program going here. I mean, there is concern. Xerxes in particular is concerned because, you know, you handle a creature and you put something, even though they're very small tags, you still have to be able to see them with binoculars and read the number. You're adding a weight, you know, you're interfering with the population to some degree. So there will be trainings and particular rules about how we'll go about doing this. But one of the things that came out of a recent webinar I was on was um, the woman was saying, well, rearing is lovely, but if you're rearing, you really should be contributing to citizen science. You know, it's lovely to rear them. I rear them because I put them in classrooms and take them to demonstrations and things for educational purposes. I don't rear hundreds. I rear just what I need to be able to get the outreach going. And people rearing them in their houses is not going to save the population. But if we're getting data that helps us understand what's happening with the population. I mean, I wanted to add something to what Torres said about Art Shapiro's study, because he's looking at a broad range of insects in his transects. Monarchs were only kind of in the middle of what he was seeing in terms of troubled butterflies. There were others that were much worse off. And when Torres talking about winter nectar, 
when you've got nectar sources, everybody uses the nectar. Butterflies, bees, uh, you know, those, those plants serve a whole lot of insects, probably a lot we don't even know. So by providing that food source year round, rather than our lawns, which are just food deserts, there's some hope of helping a broad range of insects in addition to the monarchs. There are canary that we're studying because we can see the effects and they have good PR, but the things that we do for them can benefit all the other species that we don't even know about. Hi everyone, Michael here. As I said at the beginning, we're gonna break this episode up into two parts. Next week's episode will be released in exactly one week, and it's quite a bit shorter, but it's packed with a bunch of great information, especially for those of you who have home gardens or maintain any type of land. So with that, thanks for listening and see you soon. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.